This is a very special mini episode of the I Read Comic Books podcast because today I'm here with two fantastic people Nick White. Hey. And our very special guest, Dave Baker, the magnificent comic book creator. <laughs> I don't think I've been referred to as magnificent before, but uh, I feel like I need to from now on, and you insist. Actually, I, Dave said before we go on the air, this is what you're going to call me. This yeah, is yeah. exactly what you're going to, yeah. Yeah, it's in my writer. I, I refuse to uh, do comic book uh, podcast interviews unless I'm referred to as the <laughs> magnificent Dave Baker. <laughs> Dave's writer well, wasn't that long, but this was at the top of the list. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But really, we're here to talk to Dave about like everything that's amazing about comic books, but in specific... We're talking about a book that you have coming out that's currently running on Kickstarter called Night Hunters. Before we get into you know every all the questions we have about Night Hunters, could you give us a quick pitch about what this book is? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, uh, Night Hunters is a dystopian cyberpunk comic that takes place in Venezuela, a hundred years in the future. The choice being that in Venezuela, a hundred years in the future, it's a police state, meaning. If you ever want to run for public office, if you ever want to have a baby in a hospital, if you ever want to rent an apartment, you have to have been or currently be a police officer. Um, the book is drawn by Alexis Sirit, lettered by Robert Negretti, written by me, uh, with a cover by Alexis and Vanessa Del Rey, and or the, the issue one cover by Alexis and Vanessa Del Rey, uh, and it's going to be published by Floating World Comics um, out of... Portland, Oregon. Yowza. Man, <laughs> that, that is a list of names that I really like to hear. As someone who's huge fan of Vanessa Del Rey, huge fan of yours, huge fan, fan of Alexis's, that is stupendous. I mean, seriously, like, I've been hooked on Space Riders for forever. Uh, everything that Vanessa Del Rey has done, I've picked up in one sh way, shape, or form, and I've got a whole stack of your books over on my shelf. This is a really killer Kickstarter, man. How, how did you guys all come together for this? Uh, so I met Alexis... I mean, I was a fan of his work, obviously. I really loved Space Riders and Tarantula. And, um, you know, I've been following him on Instagram forever and a day. And I met him through our mutual friend, Andrew, uh, Andrew McLean, who does Headlopper, um, which is also a very good book that if you haven't read, you should check out. Um, oh, yes. And uh, that was more for the listeners than you. I, I, know, you're, I know you're a cultured <laughs> man of taste. True, true. I just true, read true. that thank last you, week. You. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Welcome to the Cultured Man of Taste Club. <laughs> um, and um, uh, yeah, so Andrew and Alexis have been buddies forever. Um, they met doing conventions and stuff, and uh, I so I met Alexis through Andrew, and we have been talking about doing something for a long time because we both love kind of bootleg, you know, science fiction movies and knockoff Italian ripoff movies, and uh, we like a lot of the same kind of like black and white explosion comics. Um, obviously we're both illustrators and, uh, you know, you, at a certain point he was just like, yeah, I'm looking for my next book. And I was like, well, what if we did it together? Uh, and then from there, uh, Night Hunters kind of spiraled out of. Gotcha. That's, that's stupendous. I mean, it's, it's a really cool concept for a book. I mean, if you, if you guys jump on the Kickstarter, it's, it's on Kickstarter. Some of the preview stuff they have for this book just looks out of this fucking world or maybe really close to this world. And that's kind of something I kind of want to go into. But, um, I, I, I guess what's the, the basis of, you know, where everything started in, in Venezuela? Like why Venezuela? Why not the typical, you know, New York city or LA or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Alexis is from Venezuela. Um, 
he, uh, you know, he emigrated here uh, a number of years ago, uh, and uh, obviously the socio-political system that is currently uh, crumbling in Venezuela is uh, something that we have talked about a lot, and is just, you know, there's a lot of issues right now, and I think that's all, you know, kind of front of mind for him, top of mind, and right, um, right. so I think that, you know, he is very passionate about uh, his roots and his heritage and his culture and wanted to set this story in an environment that he uh, literally li- lived in, and he came to me with, like, some characters and a basic high concept and, like, you know, the name of the city and kind of, like, a rough kind of broad strokes, like, I have this idea that we would do a cyberpunk comic in Venezuela, and this guy would be the main guy, and it would be, like, some police dudes, I think, and uh, he had some drawings, um, so he had some drawings of the main couple characters, and uh, we kind of talked about it and riffed on it, and I talked to him about kind of life in Venezuela and what his, uh, what his journey to the States has been, and from there, we kind of built the world of night hunters and this kind of, you know, dystopian society, um, around some of those core ideas. Um, you know, he's a big film buff as am I, and we're both big, uh, comics nerds, obviously. So there's a lot of Mm -hmm. kind of shared language of Philip K. Dick and, you know, Ridley Scott and, um, you know, Masamuni Shiro and, uh, Katsuhiro Otomo and, uh, uh, you know, Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Even we we talk a lot about Blade Blade Runner twenty forty nine and how much we fucking loved that movie. And, yeah, yeah, very cool. Uh, well, Nick, I'll let you jump in. I know you got a bunch of questions <laughs> that you had you had <laughs> laid out before this. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess one of the interesting things that one can't help but notice is that sort of cyberpunk is like very much in the pop culture periphery right now like it's even if it's not something that you're actively seeking out it's hard to ignore the fact that it's really ever present like wherever you're looking and i mean when you look at stuff like cyberpunk 2077 is set to release in april of next year and they just put out the prequel to that cyberpunk red i think the starter kit rolled out about a month or two ago um was um was any of this sort of like uh anything that you were paying attention to as um I mean obviously Alexis came to you with the idea but I was curious if any of this either influenced or inspired or sort of had anything to do with your own work and and what came about because like I said it's hard to ignore that this is it, it feels like we've shifted away from like the post-apocalyptic obsession of the last I don't know decade and we're moving towards this yeah no I, I agree that that is definitely a shift the paradigm shift that is currently transpiring and I think that Alexis and I have been you know kind of shopping this around and working on this book for probably about two years um the whole thing is written um, right now. Uh, and, you know, so we've been talking about it for a long time. And I think it was kind of one of those scenarios where when we started talking about this, that paradigm wasn't, it wasn't as prevalent. Like not I mean? fully formed. Yeah. 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 Like it was, there was still obviously, there was a couple cyberpunk books at Image and, you know, there, I think just, I think just culturally, people have been talking more and more about William Gibson and some hmm. of the kind of, you know, 
Mona Lisa Overdrive, Johnny Mnemonic y just reading Neuromancer for the first time right now, so I don't know how this con- I don't know how this the all these coincidences keep happening, but I mean uh... <laughs> yeah, but like Neuromancer is a perfect example, right? And like like there's so much in that book that while it is like a you know a noir detective story kind of, it also has so many. I mean, obviously Neuromancer is like the the quintessential cyberpunk story. It's I think was it Mona Lisa Overdrive or uh, Neuromancer that he literally, because Flip Gibson coined the term, and I don't remember for which book, but it was one of those books that he was like, no, I feel like I make cyberpunk. Um, but I, I don't remember which book it was. Um, I, I think it was Neuromancer. I think it came out of Neuromancer for sure. Okay. Yeah. See, this, you're, 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 you're closer to that than I am. I've read, I read Neuromancer a, a, a while ago, but it's mm-hmm. been a few years since I've read it. Um, and, and yeah, I think, you know, so over the course of us putting it together, the, the paradigm kept, kept getting closer and closer and all of these things kept bubbling up more and more and more. And I think it was kind of just a scenario where it was like, if we don't do this now, we're not going to do it because it'll be too oversaturated. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Right. Like, we, 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 need to, we need to bite the bullet and just dive in because if we do this another year from now or two years from now, it's going to look like we're copying a bunch of other stuff when in fact we started doing this, you know, as like a throwback to a genre that we both really like, but that wasn't that popular at the time. And now, you know, and it does, it also doesn't help that that the game is literally called cyberpunk, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Nope. No, it does not. Uh... Yeah. Um, But yeah, so, I mean, I like all those things and I'm excited that cyberpunk stuff is kind of bubbling up more, but uh, yeah, there is a small part of you that's kind of like, Oh boy, did we, do we do we are we riding the crest of a wave or are we going to be now, uh, you know, submerged under a deluge of other content that's very similar? Right. Like, right. where do we fall in the big picture? And you know, the only thing we can do is get it out and and see, I suppose. Yeah, and the thing that we've been talking a lot about is like we've been talking a lot about um, Paul Verhoeven and and RoboCop specifically, just because that book at a distance looks like it's one thing. And when you get closer, it's another, um, you know, it, from a distance, it's like, Oh, it's a fun action movie. And then you get close and you're like, Oh my God, this is like the most intense social satire I've ever witnessed. This is great. Mm-hmm. Um, so not that I'm necessarily saying that we're trying to literally do that, but you know, I think that that's something that like every genre that has a quote unquote movement to it, the mm-hmm. initial entries that had so much cultural import and kind of voice to them inevitably get boiled down into a system of icons that become kind of redundant. Like, post-apocalyptic movies are great, and I like a lot of them, <coughs> but at a certain point, they they stop being about man's darker nature, and they just start being about, look at this guy with a mohawk, you know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, yeah, I, mean, I love... Oh, go ahead a lot of that stuff i love a lot of that stuff even even a lot of the things that are just look at this guy with a mohawk are still really fun but you know i mean there's i feel like for lack of a better example the road warrior is probably the quintessential post-apocalyptic film and a lot of it just kind of people take a lot of the wrong lessons from it you know they they don't think of it as an indictment or an exploitation of some of those darker themes and more of a just like Look at this fashion. 
<laughs> right yeah someone's gonna have a mohawk yeah yeah um no it's it's interesting that you bring up that point about people taking away taking jesus let me try that again um it's interesting that you br- you brought up the idea of people taking away um the wrong lessons because um when i was reading up about your book and and reading up on the kickstarter and other interviews one of the things that i kept coming back to was judge dread right and how if if you look at what the British, you know, strip, the weekly strip was, and if you look at the satire that was going on there and sort of how it portrayed Dread and how it portrayed Mega City 1 compared to, you know, our Stallone movie, compared to even IDW's take on the book, you sort of have what you were talking about, which is this distillation um, and where you go from, you know, ideas and you simply extract the icons and and images that you find um most uh uh, i don't know meaningful and just boil it down to that and that was kind of something i thought was sort of interesting um just sort of the evolution of dread yeah it's always really interesting to me to see all these guys dressed as judges at conventions because Mm -hmm. I mean, I like the iconography of the judges, too. They look cool. They're well-designed. You know, dressing up like a judge is probably really fun because you you get to embrace this kind of uniformity and, like, I'm one of many, and there's a comfort and a solace that comes with that. But then there's also, like, a darker kind of sociological undertone to that, which is, like, you are relinquishing individuality to be a literal fascist tool, like that's that's <laughs> what you're excited about. It's the same. It's the same. That's thing usually like, my icebreaker like when I see these people. You know, I just no, no. <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean, and and look, I think a lot of people don't they don't think about the power that those images have, and they're just like stormtroopers look cool. My friends and I look cool when we dress like stormtroopers, and that's kind of the mm-hmm. end of it. And that's, I think there should be room for that, to a certain degree. I think there should be, you know, allowances made for people to express themselves and have fun. You know, like if somebody wants to dress as Darth Vader because they relate to the power behind him, that's great. But also every once in a while I find myself being like, yeah, but he's space Hitler. Right. You want to be space Hitler? I mean, I I think unfortunately we've learned that uh, um, iconic design is not something that's isolated to good guys. Oh, yeah. There, therein lies the tragedy, right? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. And a lot of times the villains are better designed because their motivations are usually more singular and more aggressive. And, you know, most times people relate to that in a very specific and easily codifiable way. Like, I am frustrated by Situation X, and I feel better about Situation X when I dress like the Punisher, or when I wear mm-hmm. a Punisher t-shirt, or when I, you know, and like... If that helps you get through the day, awesome. But also, there's a darker, again, there's a darker side to that where we, these things are, you know, they're, they mean, these symbols mean things. And how we're choosing to communicate our, our you know, ideological uh, aspirations to each other, I think that is a, is a very specific and important aspect of living in a society. You know, I think when someone dresses aggressively, Sometimes there's like, oh, that person is is a weaker person and they're trying to make themselves feel better by dressing more aggressively. And when they're dressing more, you know, down, 
then there that it can be the same thing. And I don't know. I feel like I'm rambling now, but you you understand what I'm saying? No, I mean, I I think when you talk about um how how design influences you know mood, uh, I think that's a nice pivot to talk about Alexis's art because for me. Uh, I really like it because I feel like, for better or for worse, cyberpunk has sort of hit this, um, you know, hit this level of sorts of signs and signifiers, which used to represent something deeper, but now cyberpunk kind of has sort of a checklist, you know what I mean, of this is what you do to be cyberpunk. Someone's going to have a mohawk, someone's going to have a visor, someone's going to have spikes on shoulder pads. Uh, and someone's going to have <laughs> yeah. like a, a plug where you can jack into the back of their head, right? And so I really like Alexis's art because for me, there's less of a sort of alluring glamour to that stuff. And there's a much darker kind of connotation, if that makes sense. Like his artwork doesn't be like, ooh, you know, neon colors and... Uh, um, flashy, you know, makeup and things like that. Everything looks appropriately terrifying. That, that's actually one thing I really appreciated about the, the the bits and pieces we've seen on the Kickstarter is this book is very bright and colorful, and yet somehow everything about it feels dark and gloomy. Like, somehow there is a bright yellow page, and yet all I can feel is terror. And I, I love that about this book. I mean, the, the, specifically, there is a page with this peace through superior obedience, which just haunts me to look at because there's this, this beautiful, like, wall, wall mural thing of someone's hands in chains. I mean, that's actually something I wanted to ask you about, um, which we can get to, I guess, in a little bit because I, I know you wanted to jump in about what Nick said, but I, I really love this, the way that even with the bright colors in the neon, you know, pinks and greens and stuff, this book still feels very dark. Like, not in like a thematic way, but in like a, a visual way, there's just a darkness to the book, which is amazing. Yeah, uh, I think, you know, the, the utilizing those tropes to get a certain number of people in the door is definitely an intentional choice, right? Like, Mm -hmm. Alexis was like, I want to draw dudes with robot arms and machine guns. And I was like, great, I want to see you draw dudes with robot arms and machine guns. Let's do this. Um, but then I, but beyond that, though, then I, that's when I kind of came in and was like, okay, so if we're drawing these mechanized soldiers, that's proto-fascist imagery, and I don't want them, you know, without spoiling anything, I don't want to depict that as the ideal. You know what I mean? I don't want that yeah. to be... You know, we don't. We, we shouldn't be looking up to those people, even though they are the protagonists in a very Judge Dredd style. Do we want? How do? How are we depicting them? Why are we depicting them this way? And what is the ultimate resolution of our observation of these people? Um, exactly. Because like the book opens, the book opens with the the two main characters, um, uh, Ezekiel and 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 Julian, as little kids, and they're mm-hmm. like around a fire, and they're eating rats. And one of them, Julian says, like, I don't like the brown ones. The brown ones taste bad. And Ezekiel's like, nah, nah, the brown ones taste great. Like, you don't, you know what you're talking about. Rats are delicious. And above them is a giant, like, military propaganda poster that says, freedom awaits, enlist today. And it's a bunch of, it's a dude dressed in a cop uniform with uh, a young boy. And, like, that, that specific poster, the freedom awaits, enlist today, is, uh, is a recurring theme through the book. And it's a... Uh, it's a rallying cry for one group of people, and it's a a very specifically codified, uh, you know, 
synecdoche for everything that's wrong in society for another group of people. And mm -hmm. that question of are you willing are you willing to enlist or are you willing to put yourself into a system in order to find stability for your loved ones is the kind of fulcrum that the book takes takes place on. Um, it's a it's a it's a how far are you willing to go? Uh, how much of your morals are you willing to sacrifice? How much of your body are you literally willing to sacrifice? Um, you know, for your for your dad if he has a you know a heart valve that is has planned obsolescence, and the only way you can get that money is by being a police officer. Like, how, are you willing to make those sacrifices? Yeah, that's that's the kind of serious shit I want to you know read about in my cyberpunk comic, man. <laughs> I, I dig it. Thanks, I, I really, yeah. I, I I really like I'm, the just this the whole message of a lot of that stuff is it is it's offering quote unquote freedom, but it's in in the worst most possible way. Like we'll let you work inside this little box, provided you'll step inside the box and never leave. I really like that. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited about it on multiple fronts. I'm really excited about it specifically because it gives Alexis a very wide-ranging and visually iconic palette to use, you know what I mean? Um, because there's, there's a, a very codified thing that he wants to do, right? And I want to mm -hmm. write to that thing, and I want to make this be like the... I love space writers. I love Tarantula. I think he's a great illustrator, and he's worked with some great writers, and I think that a lot of his books are... They are 100% Alexis Zeret books, and I think when they don't work, when people try and get in his way, and so my goal was to try and write a runway that he could use to really take off and like make the best work that he's ever made. And I think even just those ten preview pages that are on the Kickstarter, like those cityscapes with all those wires and crowd scenes of people milling around, being depressed, searching through rubble, and like cops milling around on top of like giant border walls like i think that already for for my money is pound for pound some of the best work he's produced which is saying a lot like he's he's a singular voice and i am so excited to see the rest of this book realized through his through his pen yeah totally i uh, i am as well i i think that's like that's one of the things that like I, I want to see more of what this guy's pos or capable of doing. Like, given some mm -hmm. of those preview pages, that's the thing that impresses me the most. It's like I've seen his other work, and to see him get so meticulous inside this book, just in these couple of pages, it's like, what else are you guys gonna do? Like, I gotta imagine you've written some insane shit for him to draw, and that's the thing that I want to see. Like, what what goes beyond just the introduction to this story? Yeah, I I'm very excited about it. I hope that you know we can raise the money that we need to raise um, because you know full transparency, uh, Floating World, who publishes a lot of really great books, they're not in a place right now to be able to pay Alexis in advance to be able to live to make the book. So we're mm -hmm. running the Kickstarter and pre-selling the comics in order to get enough money to pay him to make the book. Um, it's going to be in Diamond, so it'll be in comic book stores. It'll be in Barnes and Noble, but we need to get over that gap of we need him to make the book. Um, and unfortunately, yeah. I'm not in a I'm not I'm not in a position where I have enough uh, money to be able to to uh, just front that cost, which I totally would if I had it because I mm -hmm. think he's amazing and I believe in the story and I I believe in him. 
Um, and right now, I think we're about like 60% funded. Um, so, you know, only uh, only a few few more tens of percentage points to go. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Nick, was there anything anything else you wanted to dive into with this? I know we've we could probably sit here and talk about cyberpunk for forever because I I really want to like I'm really curious about like where the world is in terms of like we're a hundred so years in the future. Um, you know, like cybernetics are a regular thing. We're talking about people are exchanging body parts for like this this taste of freedom, and I think like the idea of you know having to be a cop to do something. I don't know if you can expand upon that without getting too deep into the book, Dave, or like what does that mean for like an everyday citizen in this world of future venezuela yeah i think uh i think i I, it's delicate because you don't want to say too much because that is a very big conceit of the book but i will just sure sure i think um i would say like planned obsolescence is something that is i think culturally we're gonna have a, a really big reckoning with in the real world and in our book yeah. Um, like, I think the fact that we're no longer producing goods that are meant to last and that they are meant to have a half-life, I think that is something that is very dangerous. And I think mm-hmm. I am aware of why a, a late-stage capitalist society is, you know, has manufactured a system where everyone has a- accepted this as a, um, but I think that that is a deeply troubling thing because... Uh, we are very quickly going to be entering a phase where those those planned obsolescence planned obsolescence life cycles are getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter, and uh, to the point where uh, the vast majority of people will not be able to keep up with that cycle. And then you'll almost have two groups of people: people who have the technology or the access to healthcare or the access to a status uh, or a way of living that is what we deem as comfortable and then a group of people who are literally living in the past, you know, they're, or metaphorically living in the past. They're, Mm -hmm. they're living on technology that we have improved well beyond. They're living in, um, on food that we know doesn't really, uh, provide the human body with the sustenance that it needs. Um, and I think that that is something that is, while it is, Honestly, it's not like that's just something that we're literally doing right now. Mm-hmm. Which, which is kind of maybe the the worry of writing cyberpunk. Maybe I, I mean I, I don't know as someone who's not a you know big writer by any means at all. Um, <laughs> like I think you know cyberpunk it runs this border of like how close to reality do you actually want to get? Um, I, I guess that's like, maybe a question for you. It's like how how close were you trying to write to what could be like expounded upon today's technology and world um, into your book? Because I mean, a hundred years in the future, a lot can change in a hundred years. Um, but where were you trying to draw the line to say like, oh, maybe this hits a little bit too close to home or not? Yeah, I had definitely something I deliberated on. And um, the way that I thought about it is I wanted, I wasn't, trying to necessarily predict what would happen a hundred years in the future. I wanted to make a narrative box that was constructed in the same way that like a lot of Italian knockoff movies are constructed. So like they say, you know, it's space 1999 or, uh, you know, escape from the Bronx, which happens in like, you know, 2004 or whatever year that movie happens. in. you know, there's all these like 
these time periods that are just enough in the future so they're like, oh, we'll get there, but it's so far off that you can like imagine a world. And I wanted our, you know, 100 years in the future uh, Venezuela to kind of function in that same way where it would be like a knockoff future where it's almost like you're watching, like I, I think a lot about Night Hunters as what if Alexis and I found a movie called Night Hunters, which was about a group of paramilitary dudes and cyborgs mm-hmm. in 100 years in the future in Venezuela, but then we made like an art house comics adaptation of that movie. <laughs> I see. And tried to That's like, really cool. Kind of like you tried to like bend the pretzel back. So you take this, like I'm really fascinated with taking what is conventionally deemed as a low art form, aka comics, and trying to make complex, sophisticated, highbrow stories with it. You know, I'm I'm very fascinated by the idea of um, utilizing a quote unquote lowbrow medium to make high art. Obviously, I don't think it's a lowbrow medium, but there is a cultural consensus that thankfully is being eroded um, that, you know, comics... I feel like there was like, oh, comics is one era, and then Biff Bang Pow comics aren't just for kids was the second era, and now we're entering a third era where you see this boom of kids' comics and YA graphic novels, which I'm really excited about because I love that stuff. And... You know, you're 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 seeing like this last year. You know, they say 1986 was a pivotal year for the direct market. That's the year that the the book stand or a newsstand distribution crossed each other, and the direct sold the the newspaper stands. Um, and that's when you get things like Mouse and Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen. They all came out in 1986 because mm-hmm. the money and the attention in the direct market was enough to support that. And I think there's something really interesting happening right now because this last year, 2018, I think, was the year that the book trade, you know, you know, legacy publisher sales of comics passed the direct market. So now we're kind of the direct market is still here, but it's slowly starting to sunset despite all the death throws and new IP farm publishers that are trying to throw their hat in the ring. The direct market <laughs> is right now heading towards a, a, a sunset, and the book trade market is now expanding at very rapid, rapid growth. And I'm, that's both of those things are very exciting to me. Um, I mean, not, I'm, not that I'm excited that the direct market's you know having trouble. I don't. I want all comics to succeed. Um, right. But uh, innovation comes through times of trial, so I'm I'm excited by this uh, potential for growing pains. Yeah, and I think something like Kickstarter helps that a lot in in showing that there's more than one way to get a book, which is why something like you know Night Hunters and the numerous other books that make that do very well on Kickstarter like super makes sense for this the current era of comic book readers and consumers. You know, like being able to just easily pay like fifteen bucks for a digital copy of a of a comic is amazing. You know, versus having to like go to Comicsology or go to some other website and get your weird you know offshoot site to get your actual comics. Instead, it's like there is this central hub for people who say I have a, a comic that's very specific and telling this story you know I probably couldn't necessarily make it on like the book publishing scale or maybe some in some cases the direct market and they can say no but we can publish on Kickstarter and you can get a copy of that book even if it only reaches you know 4,000 people or something like that I think that's like an also also a, an amazing side of comic books that I is still growing ever ever growing I think and has been for like the last you know five to six years 
Yeah, I completely agree. And also, like, it's, it's very exciting specifically because a lot of times the thing that's so frustrating about comics as an industry is that it's so labyrinthian and it's such a boys club and you have to know the right person to be able to get the handshake to go into the back room to make the deal. Like, right. that's the beauty of that's the beauty of Kickstarter is like you don't need any of that. You just need like, I don't know. I mean, you said 4,000 and shit, man, I'm trying to find 4,000 readers. You can, <laughs> yeah, you can do a very successful Kickstarter with like 100 like, if you have True. 100 people who all give you $10, you're off the fucking races. Yeah. And I think that they're, like, everybody knows 100 people. Do they know 100 people that give them $10? No, nah, maybe not. But everybody knows 100 <laughs> I people. I was going to say, there's that might be a bridge too far. A, I mean, that's, it's, 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 it is and it isn't. I think the nice thing about Kickstarter is that it's a rallying cry. It's something that's culturally understood. It's something that is very easily comprehensible to a layman, you know, like going and pre-ordering a comic at a comic book store and then three months later getting a single issue and spending $6 and then going down there with gas. Like, that's confusing. What's confusing is, or what's simple and easy is this is the thing. I put X amount of money and I'll get mailed the thing. Great. I will do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, I mean, that's that, that's one, one of the many reasons why we're doing the Kickstarter because it is a simple, effective um, easily communicable uh, means of distribution, um, which is something that comics has struggled with for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I also want to just say that uh, to anybody listening right now, you know, that doesn't know, uh, right now there's been some labor disputes at Kickstarter and there's uh, a union being formed by the Kickstarter employees. And I fully support the unionization of Kickstarter. And I think that it's something vital, uh, both for that company, but also just in general. Um, and I think that uh, it's important that we all show the Kickstarter um, employees in the union uh, support in this time, um, because they've been going back and forth with Kickstarter leadership. Mm-hmm. And so far, they, uh, you know, they obviously they've supported um, our Kickstarter. They've supported our Kickstarter specifically. Um, Kickstarter has been very good to me. I've run three of them. This was the third one. And it's a very positive tool. Um, And uh, I feel like the people that have helped propel this tool and change so many people's creative careers and lives uh, deserve to be treated with respect and um, to be uh, paid a living wage and to be uh, helped uh, in their time of need. Um, there are multiple petitions that you can sign. Kickstarter, the Kickstarter Union, um, has a, uh, a a document that you can add your name to if you want to profess support for the union. I have, um, uh, but I think it's uh, it's also just important. It's I, I basically mean that as to say that I, I the Kickstarter people for the comics division, Camilla Zhang specifically, has been very very good to me, um, and they've really helped us out. And um, I would just like to say that whatever they need uh, from me and my cohorts, I, I hope that we show up because comics needs more solidarity. Totally. Yeah, I think, and we'll we'll provide a link to some of that stuff in the show notes for this episode because I I mean I'm right on on board with you. I, I think I've I've signed a handful of different things about that and support. I know you're not the first comic creator on Kickstarter who's reached out like to the people that backed their projects and say, hey, we should we should all rally around this because I it, I totally agree. It's something that the people there definitely deserve. Yeah, and they they I mean look, 
Kickstarter isn't, you know, they're not working in the military industrial complex, you know, they're not working, making yeah. missiles or something. Um, they're, they're out there in the streets trying to help people fulfill their dreams. Like Kickstarter is a place of innovation and it's, it's such a shame that the leadership has been uh, interacting with the union in the way that they have. And I hope that they see the error in their ways. Um, and I hope that the union is recognized and that things go um, swimmingly for them and that they are given everything they want. Um, you know, I think collective bargaining is a, is a, a great thing. Um, and I think that uh, in comics, everybody is so dispersed and they're so in their own corner that it's very hard to rally around each other in our time of need. And mm -hmm. um, comics obviously has a lot of times where people are in time of need. And comics, as a culture, man, we all, we all come out. Like, whenever somebody, and this is a, a shame that it is, that it manifests this way, but when somebody like uh, Bill Mantlo has, you know, all these health problems and has all these back medical bills, people come out and they give money. And, and I think there's, there's something wonderful about the connection that we all have through this medium and we're a community and we should take care of each other. And I know it sounds cheesy and hippy-dippy as I'm, like, talking about planned obsolescence in the military industrial <laughs> complex and being all edgy and bullshit. But I really, I really do think it's important that like everybody in comics, we should watch out for each other because there is a long legacy of people mm -hmm. not watching out for each other. And it doesn't help anything. Like it, it just makes everybody sad and sullen and alone. And like, while the statistical probability of me dying at a drafting table is probably pretty high, it'd be really nice if I didn't die that way. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like we should all just like be cool and take care of each other and respect when somebody's like, yo, I need some help. And if these Kickstarter people, employees are saying, yo, I need some help. Let's fucking show the fuck up. Yeah, man. Absolutely. I, I'm a hundred percent on board with you. I think, uh, that's, that's a, that's a, great final message i think for this i mean dave I, I i don't i know we could probably talk for another hour i think this happens every time you're on the show i think it's what's going to happen in the future when you're on next time um but you know if we if we have to, <laughs> i mean seriously we got to have you back as always um but yeah i guess any any final any final notes nick do you have any final bits and pieces you want to add to the conversation before we sign off here I mean, you know, not really. I, I, I think it's very interesting that Dave is, is writing a book in a genre that um, deals with the dangers of uh, corporations and their control over their constituents. Meanwhile, Kickstarter is dealing with what it's dealing with, and I can't help but feel that there's an interesting um, parallel there. Uh <laughs> I mean, that's, and that's something that I, that is something that I was concerned about. Um, both oh, yeah. Both logistical standpoint of like when this you know the announcement that the you know the union was forming and that a couple of the labor organizers had been let go um that 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 story came out like i think a week before we were going to launch the kickstarter and we had done everything we'd done all this work mm -hmm. and it was like well what do we do now like do we not like it's the it's 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 this weird parallel of the story we're telling of like how far are you willing to go to work in a corrupt system to get this thing that you want where it's like the irony is just crushing. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's so yeah. stupid. Oh, yeah. I, I can but only imagine. But, and also, I want to just, again, just drive this point home. Uh, the Kickstarter union has not said that they want anyone to boycott yet. Mm -hmm. um, they have been very specific about collective bargaining and that they, you know, they 
want people to continue to use the platform as the tool that it was designed to do until they need collective support. Um, so that is one of the many reasons why I chose to continue with the Kickstarter, um, because obviously I respect their wishes and their um, uh, desires and their, uh, you know, their need for bargaining chips. And if I was preemptively bargaining, it's not collective or uh, preemptively boycotting, then it's not collective bargaining. And then it's not, you know, all for one, one for all. It's a guy being like, this is my principle. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, you know, I can't speak for everyone, Dave, but I do really appreciate that, you know, you're willing to be forward and, and, you know, sort of not ignore the fact that obviously Kickstarter's got some issues of their own going on and you know i I appreciate you being transparent about how that's affecting you and the fact that you're fully aware of it and you're willing to you know just put out there your thoughts on it and and just generally be conscious of that while also you know you know doing something you know at kickstarter i think that uh, i think a lot of listeners are gonna appreciate that yeah and it's a it's a weird it's a weird situation as well because like Oh, At this sure. point, the there I I know there are a few alternatives, but the real the, the options are Indiegogo or Kickstarter. And from in from my perspective, Indiegogo supports campaigns by people who have um, ideologically based motives that I do not agree with. Um, yeah, have that's a that's a tactful they, way of putting it. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, I, I was, yeah, I mean, I mean, I feel like we all know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You know, yes. people like Ethan Van Skyver and Comicsgate people who've used Indiegogo's lack of oversight or supervision to make products specifically targeted at a group that may or may not feel um, that they are being left behind and that ideas like inclusiveness and diversity and accepting uh, of people that are from different walks of life is a negative. Um, and I obviously think those things are positives and Mm -hmm. I don't want that is a system that is, that I do not want to contribute to. Um, so at that point it was, well, we either do Kickstarter or the book doesn't happen. And I think we should live in a world where, where night hunters exists. So you know what? Fuck it. Let's do this. Hell yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And you know, um, with that, I'm going to say, you know, Dave, it's been fucking fantastic having you on as always, my friend. Um, where can people check out this thing? It's all on, what's it called? Kickstarter.com. Is that what you said? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Kickstarters.com. I think it's even, I think you can just put kickstarters.com slash night hunters and it'll take you there, I think. Um, but if not, if you just put night hunters into Google or Night Hunters Kickstarter, or you go to Kickstarter and you put Night Hunters in there, you'll find mm-hmm. it. Um, Alexis is at a Uh You should give him a follow. He's been posting a lot of cool cyberpunk-related artwork. Um, you can find me at xdavebakerx. Also, I feel like every one of my feeds has just turned into Alexis' artwork for the last like two weeks, <laughs> which I guess is fine because his artwork is amazing. So yeah. you know that's okay. Um, and also you should, uh, check out Floating World. They publish a lot of other really cool stuff. Um, they published a book by, uh, um, uh, Al Columbia, which is really great, um, about, uh, it's like a fictionalized book of movie posters from a film director from the 1930s who may or may not have existed, uh, which is really good. Um, they also publish all of Chuck Forsman's books. Um, they're, they put up really good stuff. Slasher. Uh, Revenger. Uh, oh, yeah. They published the single issues for Corey Lewis's 
Sun Bakery, which then later moved to Image. Um, they publish uh, Zach Soto's book, A Secret Voice. Um, they publish a lot of really, really good stuff. And I feel very, very honored uh, that Jason over at Floating World uh, has been super, super great to work with and, and has helped us out a lot and also just likes our book enough to put it out. Um, so fingers crossed this Kickstarter funds, baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So don't forget to go over to Kickstarter, back that Kickstarter, get it in some form. It's, it's going to be a fucking amazing book. I am certain of it. Um, as always, you can follow us all on Twitter. Nick is at Death Star Plans. I'm at Mike Rappin. The show's at IRCB Podcast. Uh, I'm not going to go through the whole spiel for this thing because this is kind of a shorter episode. Uh, but, you know, make sure to go to IRCBpodcast.com, rate and subscribe, tell all your friends. Thank you to everyone who listens. Thank you to Dave for being on this episode. You are fantastic, man. Thank you so much. And, uh, I, I guess uh, until next time, Infinity Shred does all of our music, Xander's our editor, and until next time, comics are good, and so are you.